All right, good morning, everyone. Welcome back to our study of the book of Hebrews. We begin in the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Well, increasingly in the text, what's becoming obvious is the need, the pastoral context, into which the author of Hebrews is speaking, and that need that he is addressing, so that we see that while there is really rich and profound theology about Christ as king, Christ as high priest, and you know, certainly more expansive than that, Christ made a little lower than the angels and then resurrected and exalted even above the angels, that all of this embellishment of Christ, or, you know, it's a faithful representation of who he is, but in terms of rhetoric, embellishing, lifting up, exalting in who he is, um, serves this pastoral purpose that he doesn't want his hearers to apostatize, to turn away from the faith, to escape um, what what everyone is assuming is um, suffering to come on account of the Christian faith. Um, and, and increasingly what we're going to see is that the temptation seems to be to um, apostatize back into uh, Judaism and thus escape the wrath to come by, oh, no, we're Jewish. And hey, you, know, you could think about how this might even make sense if you were a, if you were a Jew before and you worshipped Yahweh and um, did so in ignorance of who the Christ was and, and then you converted and then all of a sudden you were going to get persecuted for that, you'd think, well, maybe I could just go back. And so um, the author of Hebrews is taking great pains here to say, um, no, to go back is to reject Christ who is not only the fulfillment of the Old Testament but one better than the Old Testament. I had someone in the congregation um, who's kind of got his ear to the ground in terms of what um, some, so, some of the evangelical circles are doing in our nation. And there seems to be this great big move to go back to the Old Testament. Are you a Torah-following Christian? And um, various oddities uh, in connection with this. You can see how wrong-headed that is. And I think we could do a deeper analysis. Maybe in our other class it would be more fitting um, where we're analyzing the, how American Christianity has failed, but where you get rid of the New Testament sacraments. You no longer have the New Testament, the New Covenant in his cup. You've, you've dismissed all that. Well, then what would your impulse be to do? To go back to the Old Testament, to those rites and traditions and functions, that language even of the Old Testament, unique to the Old Testament, unique to the Hebrew people. You try to grasp hold of that for meaning. But how misguided, because you've gone retrograde. You've gone back to the old, to the partial, to the shadow. Uh, all of that it was only there to point to what we now have in Christ Jesus. So that's very similar to the, uh, the argument that the author of Hebrews is making to his people. Just the stakes are higher. Don't apostatize and go back to that. Um, remain faithful to Christ. So we see how all of, all of um, his proclamation of Christ um, really is... is bent on serving that purpose. Now, we left off um, having gone through this section um, at the end of three and beginning at four um, to summarize and certainly oversimplify. Today is the day of salvation. Don't turn away from the Lord. Um, Even the Israelites who had everything that we had in, in the wilderness, they turned away from the Lord and the Lord gave them over to their sins and gave them over to that punishment. So let's not be them. That's the rhetoric. Today is the day of salvation. You may enter his rest. And we've talked about the ways in which that rest is kind of dynamic. Um, Even entering his rest in in the sense of, come unto me, weary, and I will give you rest. Finding rest in our Lord Jesus in the sacrament. Well, if you apostatize, you've lost that rest. Um, in the day you die and your labors here on earth are, are over and you go to the, the heavenly Sabbath rest, um, well, that's gone for you too if you turn your back on Jesus. So you'll lose that rest. And then the sense of the new heavens and the new earth and the eternal rest and communion with God, the, the endless forever Sabbath day that is to come, um, you're going to turn your back on that as well if you turn your back on Christ. And then we come up again to this proclamation of Jesus as the great high priest. That's chapter 4, verse 14 in the new material for today. 
since we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Now, a subtle comparison, but what's what's the comparison? The high priest would pass through the temple veil. Do you remember in the tabernacle and temple? And that veil was patterned with um, angels, was kind of a dark bluish purplish color. It was meant to be passing into the heavens to the abode of God. So you could go back and have an earthly high priest who passed through the veil into the earthly temple, which is but a model and template of the reality, or you can have the priest who actually passed through the heavens, our Lord Jesus Christ, and is actually in the real Holy of Holies. So that's the subtle contrast even here in this language. We have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. And this is um, the second time we have seen this language, not confession in the sense of confession of sins, but confession in the way we use when we say like the Lutheran confessions, or we'll talk about a creed as being a confession. It's this homo legeo that we're speaking together. That's the homo. It's we're all sharing in this confession together, and the legeo is the speaking. And so you have that back in chapter 3, verse 1, if you remember. He says, therefore, holy brothers, You who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus the apostle and high priest of our confession. So Christianity, to be Christian, is to be confessing, asserting what the truth is into a world full of lies. It's Honestly, it's one of the things we maybe most need to recover in terms of our liturgy is the recognition that when when we are reciting the creed, we are doing, we are on the spiritual offensive we are confessing, making public confession of what we all together, all Christians of all times and places have held and um, that embodied now for us in the ecumenical creeds. So that is, a, that is an act of, um, on a human level, on a spiritual level, we are, we are confessing and um, thus doing what is essential to the church. So um, here in this context, chapter 4, let us hold fast our confession. This is like what Jude would call the the faith handed down once and for all. And so this is our confession. And you can note here, I think what's so toxic in our milieu too is you kind of have this um, this idea that's prevalent in American Christianity of like, uh, I'm a cafeteria Christian. I'll, I kind of like this part of Roman Catholicism, you know. I, I kind of like this part of Eastern Orthodoxy. This part of Lutheranism is okay. And, and this part, I mean, this is equivalent, if you know anything about computers, of like buying all kinds of incompatible parts for a computer and then trying to jam them together. Uh, you've, yeah, you technically have all the right pieces, but they're not compatible. And that's, um, and that's a lot of this make-your-own-theology make um, that we have today is not compatible. And anyone who's familiar with any one of those particular tra- traditions could tell you why the other pieces aren't compatible. Uh, so it's kind of one of the marks of a, of a spiritual neophyte when you've got this whole, I'll take whatever I like out of all the traditions. Um, so this is our confession. It's one confession. It's not idiosyncratic or unique to me or you or whatever. Um, it's not to destroy our individuality, but it's to say that we're seeking um, to all be making the same confession. All right, verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Now, the chief temptation is going to be apostasy. That's the chief temptation. I know our minds want to flit to like, um, oh no, that means uh, Jesus also must have experienced the temptation of eating one Dorito and having to stop there. You know, that's, <laughs> It's not quite what's in view here. A general sense of temptation. I mean, sure, that's fine. But acutely in terms of the rhetoric of the writing itself, this temptation is to apostatize. Was Jesus tempted to apostatize all the time? Um, most acutely, as soon as he was baptized, the Spirit drove him into the wilderness and the devil has three attempts. Um, really, we know it's more than that because he was tempted ongoing for 40 days and 40 nights in the wilderness as he was fasting the entirety of time on his own, no iPhone. <laughs> I'm going to start preaching my sermon for this Sunday. I better stop. 
spill all my good stuff. Um, but no, he was out in the, he was out in the, and then, and then codified when Jesus, who alone would know the content of that temptation, when he goes to articulate that to his disciples, he finds these three loci. These were, and I think it would be best to kind of understand these as, as the high point or the, the summary statements of kind of other aspects of the temptation he endured over those 40 days. So um, we see those three, and in each one of those three temptations, there's a kind of apostasy, a kind of turning back on who you are or on who God is. Um, you can tell this very acutely um, because when Jesus comes up out of the baptismal waters, the Spirit descends upon him like a dove, and the voice from heaven says, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Now there's the word of the Father. As soon as Jesus is driven by the Holy Spirit out into the wilderness, the first two temptations begin like this. If you are the Son of God. You can see the apostasy is to reject God as God and listen to this other voice. It's very much like what Adam and Eve went through. You have the voice of God and the voice of the serpent, the devil, and the same thing put to put to our Lord. Of course, he overcame. So he overcame these temptations, and of course, all temptations, right? And did so without sin. Um, what does this mean? That the author of Hebrews is saying we should look at him in this light as, um, as of course, being a true human being and being quite capable of having compassion because he knows exactly what it's like. He knows exactly the pressure and stress. Um, another place in time in which we might see this, remember when Jesus is in the garden praying, let this, if it be your will, let this um, cup pass from me, and he starts sweating, and his sweat is as drops of blood. Remember this agonizing, the passion begins in the garden, and there's a temptation to forsake this final thing that he is going, that he must endure. And he's fighting against that temptation and wins that victory definitively when he says, not my will, but thy will be done. And we can have a more nuanced conversation about that in a few verses when we get to, uh, because of his reverence, he was heard. Okay, so we'll table that for a minute. Um, and then what was the satanic temptation largely while he was on the cross? To come down. <laughs> to come down. Um, yeah, it's, it's hard to know exactly what the devil's strategy was there. And we, we get in trouble in terms of speculation. But one thing we could, we could definitively say, if he doesn't die on the cross for the sins of the world, then the sins of the world aren't atoned for. So it certainly works for the devil to do that. Um, so that seems to have been part of his plan. All right, so all the way along, the, um, Jesus defeats the devil, but does so as true man such that he can sympathize with us in our weaknesses. Um, he knows what we're going through on a visceral level. You know, you could, if you don't have children, you can read every book there is about having children and what it's like, but it's not quite the same as having them. And so there's this legitimate sense in which Jesus is true man and experienced these things. And, you know, again, I'm not trying to get into some, like, super highfalutin theological philosophical argument, but there is a sense in which even God doesn't experience these things as man, and then in Christ Jesus, he does, intimately and perfectly so. So this is to be, this is to be great comfort for us, that, you know, and I think, look, you're tempted to fall away from the faith, so is our Lord Jesus. He has um, compassion, he sympathizes with our weakness, um, yet he's without sin and he's leading us to a better way. So, verse 16, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, all kinds of weirdness has been done with <laughs> with this idea of throne of grace. But this is, um, if you're thinking in Old Testament terms, which the author of Hebrews is, the throne of grace is the mercy seat in the, high, in the holiest of holies. That's what the throne of grace is. That's where the blood of, of the lamb is poured out once a year at Yom Kippur. Um, it's called the mercy seat. Upon, uh, that's the hilasterion. Um, from which uh, we get the language of propitiation. That's usually how it's translated into English. Christ is that mercy seat of God. Christ pours out his blood upon that mercy seat. So this is the, the throne or mercy seat of grace. Um, by the way, it's, it's why um, yeah, the, the Ark of the Covenant really is, is properly a throne. And you've got uh, the cherubim on it. But in the, in the original temple, you've got great cherubim standing beside it too. That's why in Isaiah's vision, when he's standing outside of the curtain with the, author, with the altar of incense billowing up 
and he suddenly has this vision of God. It's as if the curtain is no longer there. He's peering into the heavens and he sees the mighty seraphim, the six-winged angels, and, and then you've got this holy, holy, holy back and forth, kadosh, uh, kadosh, kadosh, Yahweh, Sabaoth, um, and uh, from which we get our sanctus in the Lord's Supper. Um, that, that liturgy. But then enthroned, he sees the train of the robe and enthroned is the Holy One of Israel. And so there's a, there's a visual image confirming that the throne, the throne of grace in this case, is um, the altar upon which Yahweh sits, is the uh, hilasterion, the, um, the covering of the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, so let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. Now, he hasn't quite articulated this yet, but how can we with confidence draw near? Because Jesus, our high priest, has gone first. And in just a minute, we're going to have this uh, language fleshed out all the more. He's like the forerunner that leads us into the holiest of holies with God. Because he goes first, um, cleansing the way, having mercy upon us, we're able to join with him in this holiest of holies, uh, previously reserved only to the high priest and only under very limited circumstances. It's now been opened by Christ um, to all believers. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace. I mean, this is so astonishing because it would be like, hey, let's all go into the holiest of holies together. (laughs) That we may receive mercy. And I love this because it doesn't require sinlessness here, right? It's that we may receive mercy and find grace and help of time of need. Now, is this a present tense or future tense? Theological reality, present tense. Yeah, present tense. So present tense, we are invited to come near to the throne of grace the holiest of holies, that we may receive mercy and find grace in time of need. Okay, then locate that holiest of holies for me in Christian theology. What's that? Lord's Supper. Absolutely right. How do we know? The blood of the Lamb poured out on the mercy seat is now come to an end. Yom Kippur on the Day of Atonement has come to an end. Why? Because Christ made full atonement. Um, Christ is the Lamb of God, um, and he fulfills and abrogates uh, the Old Testament sacrifices. So it is his blood poured out on the mercy seat, and we transition in our minds, we transition in our minds from the tabernacle and temple, which are but a model of the heavenly realities. Remember how this is stated in the Old Testament scriptures? And now we're, we're beginning to see the heavenly realities themselves. And so as we are, what is, what is the author of Hebrews saying? It's exactly what we say when we talk about in Holy Communion, um, where the blood of Jesus is outpoured. Um, we talk about heaven and earth joining as one. Now we do so in this way. We know that, we know that it's his body and his blood here on earth. Is there one Christ up in heaven and one Christ down here on earth? No, that'd be the Nestorian heresy, no thanks to that, or some other weirder heresy, probably. Um, but rather, where Christ is, there heaven is. And Christ says, here I am, this is my body, this is my blood. So we say, and we're going to see the author of Hebrews do the same thing, by the way. We say, with angels, archangels, and all the company of heaven, we are gathered together. Heaven and earth have become one when we are in the presence of the blood of Jesus and receiving that. So this is all what's being alluded to. It's just first century Um, author of Hebrews imagery, but it's all very familiar to us. Once we wrap around what he's, our heads around what he's saying, it's like, okay, so we do approach the true throne of grace, precisely when we come up and receive from Jesus his true body and true blood um, for our forgiveness. We are approaching that mercy seat of God, the true Ark of the Covenant, the true blood that cleanses of all sins. And there, and from that, we um, go to that we may receive mercy, as the author argues, and find grace to help in time of need. So, present tense sacramental reality. And if we think, well, this is too above, um, you know, this is too above your average first century Christian to grasp, well, then brace yourself, because uh, coming up um, in the, uh, yeah, coming up in, um, chapter 6, he's going to go on this diatribe of how we need to depart from all the elementary principles of Christianity. Like, hey, you all should be more mature than to be debating about these things. You all should have grasped these things so that you can understand um, the more difficult things that I'm now teaching you. So, 
um, a little a little bit high-handed maybe um, from you know that might be the critique leveled against him but this is inspired by the Holy Spirit so not high-handed at all but rather a call to thoroughly understand that foundation and have that groundwork laid within you so that you're ready to become mature and advance on to more complicated things which the author of Hebrews is clearly into and this is one of those images where he's just without telling us without holding our hand or attaching training wheels he is um, configuring for us uh, in a very visual theological way how it is we're to understand the Lord's Supper um, drawing near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and grace and help of time and need. Now, if you apostatize to Judaism and the temple's still around, um, I know that's a bit of an assumption, but are you able to approach the throne of grace? Nope. Are you able to get any uh, mercy or grace for help in time of need? Nope. Are you there with Jesus, your high priest? Nope. So that all is happening too, rhetorically, as he's saying, look what you're going to be turning your back on, you know. There's a kind of positive teaching always on what these things are, like this is what it is, um, but always to the negative of, so don't turn your back, right? Okay, any questions? Are we ready to uh, go on to uh, chapter 5? All right, a little bit of an artificial break here because the same line of rhetoric continues. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on... Doesn't it sound like he's still talking about an, an extant temple? I think so, too. It's one of the things that when you just read this, you have a really... I mean, but this is the debate as to authorship and everything else. But that would... So the temple's destroyed in 70 AD. It sure sounds like he's talking as if the temple's still extant. Um, that would make this uh, preceding 70 AD. Um, of course, there's all manner of debate about who wrote it and when. Um, and in fact, yeah, yeah, the, oh, good. <laughs> I'm in agreement with the Lutheran Study Bible. The Lutheran Study Bible also asserts this is written before 70 AD. You know, it's, it's so common in scholarship these days to assert it's after, but it just makes no sense. His rhetoric falls apart if, if they can't actually go do these things. So yeah, before 70 AD, the Study Bible um, is tracking with me, and, or, or I with it, rather. All right, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Now, if Christ is going to replace this, we're going to see that Christ is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God. Do you see that? So, um, gone is this idea then that like what Christ came to do is make it so it's just me and God. That's not what he came to do. Um, he, is a, he is a greater mediator, a greater high priest, a greater go-between. That's going to be the argument. Every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, now, notice the passive too, just in passing. The high priest is chosen. He doesn't choose himself. He doesn't volunteer himself. He's chosen. All right, he's offering gifts, that's one thing, and sacrifices for sins. I don't want to go on a long diatribe of this, but it is a helpful framework. Here's kind of a biblical sadies for it. But it is a helpful framework to think of Old Testament and New Testament sacrifices um, as being uh, of, of two different kinds. Okay, um, Confusingly. We would use the language of like a Eucharistic sacrifice, not because it has anything to do with the Eucharist or the Lord's Supper. That's why it's so confusing. But because Eucharist means thanksgiving. So look at this language of um, to offer gifts. That's the thanksgiving offering. That's like what in the New Testament is prayer or praise or offering yourselves, your bodies as living sacrifices. Remember that language in Romans 12? Um, these are not sacrifices for the forgiveness of sins, but they are in fact sacrifices, and they're sacrifices of thanksgiving. They're bringing gifts to God. So what is the, what is the daily sacrifice that every Christian makes? You wake up and immediately you begin your vocation as a member of the royal priesthood. The sacrifice you are going to make is yourself. You are the living sacrifice. And how are you killing yourself? Because you're living not according to your own self-interest, but according to God, right? And for the benefit of 
neighbor. And so you're going to do things like offer prayers for yourself and for others. You're going to give glory and praise to God because he's worthy of it. You're going to seek to please him in all things, which also means you're going to faithfully and lovingly fulfill your vocations. Now, do any of us do that perfectly? Of course not. Do any of us even come close? Of course not. We're all sinners. But that doesn't mean that that's not the New Testament theology. Okay. Now, in the New Testament theology, what, is the sacrif- what are the sacrifices for sins? Well, there's only one, and that is Jesus, the sacrifice on the cross made once and for all. Now, we partake of that sacrifice that he has made once and for all, and he gives us his body and his blood. Now, that's not obvious to us, but as soon as you have body and blood separated, you have a sacrifice. Yeah. That is the language of sacrifice in the Old Testament. The, the blood has to be drained from the body. So when Christ says, this is my, he doesn't just say, this is me. <laughs> he says, this is my body, this is my blood. Completely separate actions. You are partaking of the sacrifice I made once and for all. That sacrifice 2,000 years ago um, is a timeless kind of sacrifice that I bestow and give um, in time and space, wherever and whenever I will. All right, so then um, that is the New Testament sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins. What about the Old Testament? All the slaying of animals, the, the lamb being slain and poured out on the mercy seat of God, but there are other specific sin offerings. Different innocent animals have to die for the guilty human being. Those are the sin offerings of the Old Testament. So the Old Testament, you have this structure of sin offerings, that offerings that are made that take away sin. Okay? It's complicated because that's actually connected to the forgiveness of sins in Christ. But then you have this other category of thanksgiving offering or gift offering. That's, those same two categories of sacrifice translate into the New Testament. They're just, they just take on different content. All right? So think of the divine service. As we said in the Lord's Supper, you're receiving the sacrifice for sin that Christ made. You're receiving that, and then you're responding it with... Prayer, praise, thanksgiving, that is an offering. That is, uh, even just believing is the chief kind of offering and gift that we, um, that we give to God as a result of what he's given to us. So this is a way of understanding um, you know, how, how it is that we are priests and Jesus is our high priest. And it's a good way to, it's a good thing to point out here when we, for every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to offer God uh, to offer gifts, excuse me. In relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. Um, where does the sacrifice of the mass, so-called, in Rome mess up? Well, it takes the sacrifice for the forgiveness of sins that Christ made, and it makes it something that we are representing to God. And so then it's our something we're doing is a sacrifice for sins, and um, it's really it's really a bad way of understanding. Because Christ says, you know, take, eat. That's the, I'm giving it to you for the forgiveness of your sins. The directionality is from God through Christ to us. And we say, oh, okay, I'm going to take this. And rather than eating and drink it and receiving the forgiveness of my sins, gift received, I'm going to take it and I'm going to re-offer it to you. You know, where does that come from? Nowhere. So we, and probably a lot of this confusion happens in the early church fathers. They will talk about the Lord's Supper as a sacrifice. Um, why? Yeah, because Christ dies on the cross, his body and blood separate. He's the sacrifice, so let us take the sacrifice. Let us have the sacrifice. Let us enjoy the sacrifice. Um, all this kind of language. And then later on it gets kind of imbued with this language of, it's us doing the sacrifice. <laughs> That's where the problem happens, right? All right. So, um, yeah, beneficial, beneficial. And then verse 2, he can deal, again, Jesus here in view, our high priest, he can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. That's now, in this case, it's the frailty of the human flesh. It's the blindness. It's, this is equivalent to Paul's born under the law. You know, um, we're not saying Jesus had any weakness of sin, any fault in his human nature, um, any original sin or inherent guilt or something like that. We're not saying anything like that. But we are saying that he experienced all the things we experience, like hot, cold, fear, 
um, doubt. Well, doubt in the sense of sense of like uncertainty. That's what I mean. Not doubt in the sense of God, but doubt that would be faithlessness and a sin. But doubt in the sense of like um, uncertainty, danger. Um, those kinds of feelings are very legitimate for him, and so um, he himself uh, bore, um, came into the world in this way. All right, then all of this is, like, is an amazing condescension on the part of the Son of God that he would become like this for us, um, not only for our salvation, but then also to sympathize with us, strengthen us, lead us along the way as one who is fully compassionate and one who can even, um, I love this part about Jesus, um, deal gently with the ignorant and the wayward. You know, that's what, one of our big problems. As soon as we get to knowing just about anything about anything, we can't hardly countenance those who are ignorant or wayward. Jesus can. It's a really beautiful thing. For as orthodox as Jesus was, perfectly orthodox, as moral as Jesus was, perfectly moral, somehow he still had a way of hanging out with sinners such that they didn't hate him. And didn't, you know, he got to be known for these eating and drinking and with sinners and he got accused by the Pharisees of being a drunkard. How is it that Jesus, perfectly orthodox, perfectly moral, can hang out with sinful people in such a way that they're not instantly turned off? That's the goal. <laughs> That's the goal. Be, be perfectly orthodox, be perfectly moral, and yet not be the way we ought, so often are that it's just a complete turn off um, to other people. Self-righteous, smug, whatever the case may be. Um, but to be relatable um, and then capable of dealing gently with ignorant and wayward. So, I, I mean, again, I'm expanding on the meaning of this verse, but I think you'll, you get what I'm saying. So he can deal gently with the ignorant wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice. Oh, did I? Yeah, offer sacrifice for his own sins. Sorry, and I think I skipped, I screwed that up. This is um, uh, the, high, the earthly high priest, not Jesus. Sorry, I screwed that up. Um, the earthly high priest can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward since he himself is beset with weakness. In this case, sin. Yeah, sorry. Goodness, I wish you would have called me out on that earlier. Because of, um, because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, so let's try to clean this up just a little bit. Um, go back to verse 15. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. That would be the argument. What would be the argument for having um, a, a human sinful high priest? He's just like me. He sins all the time. All right. Um, he would sim- be sympathetic with me because he himself is a sinner. All right, so what's the author of Hebrews saying? Jesus is sympathetic. We do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses. But how much more superior is Jesus then to, to this um, human priest who himself is beset with weakness, who himself is overcome with sins? Jesus himself sinless. Jesus himself not overcome with weakness. And yet I I still don't, actually, as much as I bungled this, I still don't take back the part that um, Jesus is able to deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, and we see him doing that all the time. All right. um, Verse 3, Because of this he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. How is Jesus' sacrifice superior? Obviously not for his own sins but only for the sins of the people. Verse 4, And no one takes this honor for himself, but only when called by God, just as Aaron was. All right, so there's the idea back in verse 1 of being chosen, of being called by God as Aaron was. And then verse 5, So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him, that is God, or the Father even more specifically, who said to him, the Son, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Now we can see why um, Kleinig earlier, when this same verse was quoted, was inclined to see this in terms of like an, what we would say an ordination of the high priesthood. Um, and then as he says also in another place, this would be the Father speaking, you speaking to Jesus, speaking to his son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, so what might they also argue? That, well, Jesus has no standing. Um, We would rather go to the Levitical priesthood that have the calling and standing. And the author of Hebrews is saying, well, 
Yeah, they, they were called, and so was Jesus. Jesus was appointed, and here are his ordination verses. Here are the places in the Old Testament scripture where God appointed him. And, of course, the argument is going to be beautiful. Where I'm getting just a pinch ahead of myself, but the argument's going to be Jesus' priesthood is older. Jesus' ordination is earlier than the Levitical priesthood and ordination. All right, so just tracking right along, verse 7, in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now, interesting, in the days of his flesh, is he still risen in his body? Yes. So what's going on? A change in mode. He's was the incarnate one in his earthly ministry. That's our familiar language for it. He's incarnate still, but he's changed modes. So, Jesus in the day of his flesh, um, or in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications, just like a high priest, with loud cries and tears. Um, here kind of some insight into, uh, into the prayer life of Christ, um, with loud cries and tears, to him who was able to save him from death. Now, this kind of puts us in the mindset of, um, you know, not just the garden of Gethsemane, where he prays you know, that God would take the cup from him, um, but also all throughout his passion and crucifixion, um, you know, even up until the point where he says, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Um, this idea that um, he is uh, praying to God, um, who is able to save him from death, and then as he was heard because of his reverence. So there was, in other words, there was no doubt that the Father heard him as his sinless son and as the only pure and perfect high priest. All right, let's backtrack just a little and kind of flesh this out. So um, Christ has not exalted himself. It's not like he, this um, son of the tribe of Judah, just suddenly declared himself to be a high priest. The accusation would be, oh, he's not a Levite. Okay. He has a priesthood that goes earlier than the Levitical priesthood, that which traces all the way back to, to Melchizedek. All right, who is Melchizedek? Genesis 14, yeah. King of Salem. King of Salem, mm-hmm. So Melchizedek is king of righteousness, if memory serves, and we're also told that he's the king of Salem and Salem peace. So he's the king of peace or the prince of peace. So these are um, no father or mother. titles for Christ. Yeah, he has no father or mother. Let's, go, let's just go on a quick little field trip. Leave a, leave a finger here. We won't be long. But let's go back to Genesis 14 and take a look. I think I wrote down Genesis 14, 18. All right, Genesis 14:18. Now, you remember this is after Lot has been captured and Abraham's rescued him. He's kind of ridden off to war and slain a bunch of kings. And then verse 18. So, after his return from the defeat of, that is, he defeated, uh, gosh, I always struggle with his name. <laughs> yeah, Cheddar Laomer. Let's just put it that way. So anyway, after his defeat of this guy with a hard-to-pronounce name, and the kings who were with him, the king of Sodom went out to meet him at the valley of Shavah, that is the king's valley. And Melchizedek, so again, king of righteousness is what that actually means, king of Salem brought out bread and wine. Yeah, we have this mysterious figure. Now, okay, there's a little bit of debate um, throughout the history of the church. Is Melchizedek Christ or is he somebody who represents Christ? 
I don't know. I don't, I don't really think we can definitively know. Um, be that as it may, one thing that's absolutely certain is this is the passage upon which uh, the author of Hebrews is making his argument. So, a priest after the order of Melchizedek. And we could spend some time there nitpicking that too. Does that mean necessarily that Melchizedek himself was the first priest in this order? Uh, an argument could be had. So Melchizedek, king of Salem, king of peace, brought out bread and wine. And then we learn that he's not just a king, but he was priest of God most high. Now, I think this is an interesting thing, because if you were to just summarize the entire theology of Hebrews heretofore, would it not be that Jesus is king and priest? Yeah, I think so. So in a sense, you kind of wonder if this wasn't the the text of the sermon. (laughs) (laughs) that the author of Hebrews is preaching. All right. Um, Yeah, so he brings his bread and wine. He is priest of God Most High. So he's king and priest. And he blessed him. That is, uh, Melchizedek blessed Abraham and said, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. All right, what do we see? He's in a mediating role. In the first place, he speaks, you know, um, for God, blessing Abraham. Blessed be Abraham by God most high. And then he turns and blesses God. Blessed be God most high, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And they're even interceding for Abraham in a sense. So we see this mediating role between God and man by this king and priest Melchizedek. And then um, even more telling, of course, uh, latter half of verse 20, and Abram gave him a tenth of everything. So a tithe, recognizing him to be a true priest of God. And that's, that's probably enough. I mean, other than that, we just get into the story and narrative of that event with uh, Abram, which will lead us off track. So this is, um, this is the idea. And then, of course, um, where is this? If we go back to Hebrews chapter 5, back where we were, um, you know, and you look at verse 6 of chapter 5, as the Father, as he says also in another place, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. But this, is a direct, this line is a direct quotation from Psalm 110. So it's not as though the author of Hebrews invented this connection. Um, All the way back, this thought was already inspired by the Holy Spirit in the author of Psalm 110 to see that this Messiah who was promised and would come has a priesthood after the order of Melchizedek. So, interesting, because, you know, if you just kind of line this up in terms of chronology, you have the events with Abraham and Melchizedek, okay, Then you have um, the institution of the Levitical priesthood. Then you have the author of Psalm 110 saying, the Messiah to come will be a high priest, not after the order of the Levites, but after the order of Melchizedek. And some thousand years later, you have the author of Hebrews quoting Psalm 110 that's referencing Genesis 14, saying Jesus is that guy of whom the psalmist spoke. And of course, the psalmist is claiming, um, is making the claim to speak directly for God. This is the father saying to the son, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. All right, well, hopefully we've fleshed that out. All right, then in the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up prayers and supplications. Now, again, this is all broad with loud cries and tears um, mediating between God and man. Who was able to save him from death? Now, I think that this can um, color the way, and I don't want to get into a long discussion on this because I could probably spend a couple hours myself just talking about this aspect, but it can help color the way we understand um, Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. Remember when he goes, um, all his disciples have fallen asleep. He goes forward with Peter, James, and John. They too fall asleep. He goes a little further. He's praying. You remember all of this. And he says, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. Not my will, but your will be done. What exactly is Jesus asking for there? Is he, is he saying, you know, let's scrap this whole cross thing. Um, okay, well, that, that's a possibility, but it's not without great difficulties. In John's gospel, there's no episode like that at all. But rather, in John's gospel, he goes, 
shall I, shall I then not drink this cup that the Father has given me? It is for this cup that I come. Which if you're reading the Gospels chronologically, it's almost as if John's correcting that theology. It's very interesting. It's very interesting. Not the theology of the, um, the synoptic Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, but the reading of them, that Jesus had somehow gotten cold feet. And the, and the Lutheran way, I, I don't know, it's not the Lutheran way, it's the modern way of doing it. It's modern Lutheranism, but this whole like, well, that was Jesus' true humanity, getting cold feet. Uh, I don't know, I don't know. It's, it's very unsatisfying, even if, even if it's ultimately true, it's not described in a very, or framed in a very satisfying way. There are other ways to frame and describe it, um, and to think about it, I think, much more fruitfully. But one of the ways to look at that is that Jesus had already begun to drink the cup. He was already, um, because he gave the cup of salvation to his disciples, from that moment on, he was already drinking the cup of God's wrath um, moving forward. And as he goes into Gethsemane, um, let this cup pass from me is what? Like, let not this be the final end of me, but help me drink it, endure it, and be through with it. Now, that's a very interesting way of thinking about it, and, and it's not without its challenges and difficulties, too. And again, I, I, it might even be better to reframe the whole thing that Jesus is doing there in the garden. But if we were to read um, the author of Hebrews here is answering this question, then what is Jesus asking for? He's not saying, take the cup away from me altogether, but after it is finished, take the cup away. What would that be? Take your wrath away and let my work come to its fullness and completion, such that your wrath is consumed and there is no more, and it's removed from me and removed from my people. Now, that se- now all of a sudden, that seems to be a lot more fruitful. And now you don't have any problem harmonizing John's gospel. Um, you don't have to do any of this weird Christological, like, well, the human part of Jesus got cold feet kind of nonsense. Um, so even if we don't have it quite perfectly right yet, Um, and that might be debatable, Uh, it is interesting to see that what Jesus is praying for might not be like, hey, uh, Father, I've got second second thoughts about the cross, Um, but might be more a prayer prayed in absolute reverence that God would save him, deliver him from the cup, take the cup and remove it away from him such that what? If God's wrath is removed, then Jesus might rise from the dead which seems to be exactly what's going on here. So, um, yeah, just one second. So, um, he, is, he is praying with loud cries and tears to him who is able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. That is, he was resurrected. So that's the answer to this prayer. Please. Um, when he said, let, let not my will, let the Father's will... Okay, was he not saying that, well, maybe the Father, maybe, are you sure you want me to do it for everybody? Are you, is there another way? He wasn't asking maybe for himself, but the Father, God the Father. Yeah, I don't know. If he would change his... Yeah, I don't know. The way I've kind of thought about it, maybe akin, is that what we have here from Jesus is a much more intimate communication. What does it mean that he drinks the cup? It's, it's not just a cup. It's the cup of his father's wrath. I, I, sometimes I meditate on what would it be like to be the everlasting son with the everlasting father. Before the foundations of the world, before there's such a thing as time, you've loved one another perfectly. You've been joined in perfect communion and union and blessedness and mutual love. And that's going to come to end for a, a time. That thought in and of itself must be a devastating kind of thought and immediately a prayer of like, just almost an emotional prayer of like, I don't want this. I'm going to do it. Your will be done and your will actually is my will, but I don't want to. <laughs> I don't, and, and not, in the, not even there in the sense of like cold feet, like, oh, I'm scared of the nails. I mean, you know, they're scary and everything, but I think Jesus can handle it. Um, it's, it's more like the, sen- like the deeper sense of like um, forsakenness by God. Like that's almost like, and, and again, we're in we're in a mystery here that's really too deep. And if we probe too deeply, we're likely to get in trouble. But I mean, let me just go ahead and probably put one foot over the line anyway to just kind of articulate the point. But I mean, even just imagine the divine Son of God being able to cope with separation, forsakenness from the divine Father. I mean, it's just these are these are things so far above us, so unspeakably deep. 
that I wonder if that isn't maybe, in fact, the best frame through which to listen to that text, is this is the Father and the Son in intimate communication. This isn't something for us to come swinging in on our ropes being like, oh, I see here he's reverted to his human nature. I've <laughs> I'm uh, kind of missing the point, I think, yeah. And, and that, that critique may even hold true with this idea of the cup passing isn't asking to get out of the cross, but asking to be raised from the dead. Um, I think that that's much more accurate, but that too may even be putting too fine of a point on it. We, we may just, I mean, isn't there a space for the, this expression of emotion? I mean, we have to acknowledge for two persons of the everlasting trinity, to be in a state where the Father is forsaken the Son. I mean, this is, it's never, ever occurred. It's so above us and so profound, we can't even wrap our minds around it. And to think that that might be expressed in a, in a, in a place that gives us pause, and it's given to us just simply that we might marvel at the mystery and marvel at the goodness of the Father and the Son, that they were willing to endure and suffer this for us and for our salvation. I wonder if that's more the point than kind of trying to slice and dice it up into an easy, easily uh, understood, <laughs> commodifiable uh, bit of theology. Yeah. All right, anything else on that? Did you have a question, comment? Nope, you're the microphone holder. All right. <laughs> okay, so let's go, let's go a little. Anyway, he's heard out of his reverence. That's the point. Although he was a son... He learned obedience through what he suffered. Again, here, like, I think is where we really as Westerners kind of just get bound up, like, oh, he learned, you know, okay, what's the expression? What's the sentiment? Um, You don't know something until you've experienced it. In this sense, you haven't learned it. You don't know it until you've intimately experienced it, and then you've learned it. So obedience, um, this would be kind of Paul in Philippians, very akin to that thought, where um, he humbles himself to be born taking the form of a servant, and then humbles himself even more to the point of death, and then humbles himself even more even to the point of a despicable, cursed death in the eyes of Jew and Gentile on the cross. So this emptying out, this kenosis, that's the fancy word, um, this, is, this is all summarized here in this, his learning obedience. It's not like, oh, I didn't know obedience before and now I know it. That's like an intellectual knowing. And that's how our minds betray us in a passage like this. Like, oh, Jesus didn't know what it was to be obedient. He must have just known disobedience. And then he learned obedience. Ah, nonsense, nonsense. That's a misunderstanding. Um, he was obedient, but he learned, he come to, came to know intimately, he experienced the fullness of what it means to be obedient in the absolute depths of obedience. Um, obedient even to the point of death, even death on a cross. I, that's the sentiment of this verse. Okay. And then, and being made perfect. Now we've seen this before. Oh, Jesus wasn't perfect before? You know, what's going on here? Um, now, what Kleinig's going to point to is that the change that's happening is one of his having not suffered for our sins, having not obedient to the point of death, he is not yet fully our faithful high priest. Once he offers himself in perfect faithfulness for the sins of the world and is perfectly obedient and faithful all the way through, now he has done that. That's Kleinig's point. So his being made perfect, don't think of like moral perfection or I don't know, like the way, the category is more like, like telos. Um, he became the fullness of. So, having come to his fullness, being made perfect, becoming mature, having arrived in, in doing what? In being faithful even unto death and laying down his life for the life of the world. Thus he's our true high priest. Um, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him. Again, our language is like, okay, well, we have to obey him. How much do we have to obey him? 100% or you're out. Oh, so we have to be sinless in order to be saved. Then why do we need a savior? So what does obey mean? Obey just means faith. It's just a synonym, synonym for faith. To obey Christ is to believe in Christ. To treasure his word. Of course, we aspire to do it. So, um, yeah, he's a source of eternal uh, um, salvation to all who obey him. Um, and look at the parallel. His obedience to the Father, verse 8. Our obedience to Him, verse 9. 
Verse 10, he being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. So to obey a high priest is to put yourself under him. It doesn't mean you're sinless. If you were sinless, you wouldn't need a high priest. Um, But it does mean that you recognize him as your high priest and you're um, trying to be obedient to him in faith and life and um, trusting in his sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins where you fail. And that's just, all of this is a way of, a perfect way of describing Christianity, isn't it? It's just clothed in the language of the Old Testament, clothed in the language of the sacrificial system of the temple, and all done for the purpose that it's like, again, if you're tempted to go back to the temple, you're going, how could I ever do that? Everything that the temple was is pointing to this, this man, Jesus. Everything that the priesthood was is pointing to this man, Jesus. Everything the sacrifice were for is pointing to him who made this perfect sacrifice for us. That's the rhetoric. So far, so good? All right, let's, uh, let's go. Get spicy. 11. About this we have much to say, and it is hard to explain. <laughs> awesome. Since you have become dull of hearing. Oh! Yeah, burn. So it is hard to explain would seem to be like, yeah, this is high, hard stuff. No! Because you've become dull of hearing. <laughs> oh, man, that stings a little. But it's true. Yeah, so, um, and then he continues, verse 12, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. So, like, what's he doing here rhetorically? You guys already should know this. Come on. These things are only hard for you because of the dullness of your heart. So this is a little pastoral chastisement and challenge. I don't know how well this works in our culture, to tell you the truth. Pastor's being mean. <laughs> but, but for this guy, you know, he's, he's really pushing on us heavily, trying to say, come on, you guys, come on. This, don't, you know, you're thinking about apostatizing. You don't, now I've got to teach you the basics again, the basic principles of the oracles, the revelations of God. And he's going to go on to describe this further so we don't have to grope for content. He says, you need milk, not solid food. Now, in so, this is kind of a, in one of the places in, in um, is it Peter, where he says, he says, crave the pure spiritual milk like infants, you know. So um, there's a positive use of milk. Here's a negative <laughs> use, okay. You need milk, not solid food. What's he saying? Like, I'm trying to give you solid food here and you're vomiting it up. You're babies. You got to go back to the milk. I can only feed you milk. This is embarrassing. Again, this is kind of his rhetoric. He's pushing hard, trying to, you know, kind of inspire that pride within us to stand up and, and believe and take ownership for our faith, for what God has given us these, in these oracles, these revelations of God. So his chastisement continues. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness. Now, again, this is kind of going to make us a little uncomfy. It's good. I think it should. Um, there are Christians who are skilled, in the word of righteousness and unskilled in the word of righteousness. Everyone who lives on milk is, un- that's going to be the basics of the faith, is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature. So even here we see kind of a, kind of a bifurcation. I don't mean to make too much of it, but there's, there's children in the faith and there's the mature in the faith. And he's urging us on to maturity, to grasp these things of which he's speaking. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. So there's the, there's the test, distinguishing good from evil, because what? What does our fallen nature, um, by nature, do? Calls evil good and good evil. Exactly right. Yeah. Go to church. My flesh says, no. Hey, it's good to be in my to sleep in and sit in my pajamas. I deserve a day of a day off, a day of rest. That's what my flesh says. So the good of go to church, be face to face with God who forgives your sins, cleanses your heart, fills you with his Holy Spirit, enlightens you with his word, all of that good, I go, no. I need my pajamas and my rest. So the flesh, you see, calls that which is good evil and that which is evil good. All right, so then how is it that we come into maturity? By constantly having our powers of discernment 
trained. Think weight training, think running, think um, anything that requires habit and discipline and repetition. Trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. And this is what we need inside the church, outside of the church, particularly as we look at the world around us. You know, and I, I see this all the time in my kids. It's, I mean, it's kind of great fun um, because you see their little minds and you see that they know good and evil, um, but they're very easily led astray. If, you know, if somebody says, hey, this is... Um, you know, and so sometimes, like, especially my son, because he's getting into fourth grade, you know, he'll come home with a pronouncement of, like, you know, s- some, some culturally acceptable evil, you know. Isn't it terrible that we're polluting the air? <laughs> and it's like, okay, yes, it is. We want to be good stewards of, but there's a more complicated conversation there, isn't there? Like, you ready to give up on your car? You're... How are you going to get to church? How, are you going to get, how am I going to get to work? How are you going to get to school? You know, so, um, so it's great to see in the little ones a sense of right and wrong. But what do we have to engage in as, as mature Christians? Um, training and discernment by constant practice distinguishing good from evil. So we have to be willing to listen and look carefully and judge righteously and take in the complexities and all of these things. Um, And in so doing, then we demonstrate that we're no longer children, but mature in the faith. And that's what he's exhorting us on to. All right, well, I wish I could say it gets um, a little more bland, but it doesn't. It continues to get spicy, and we're going to hit that. Um, I need to kind of make this announcement. Um, So next week, the 11 o'clock class is going to be canceled. For those of you who join us for the other events on Thursday morning, whether that's uh, confession absolution or whether that's the service of communion, the divine service we have, or um, the 8 o'clock class on on, um, has has Christianity America failed, um, that all is on next week, but the 11 o'clock class has to be canceled. So no 11 o'clock class. In two weeks, we're going to jump into chapter 6, verse 1 and continue with this diatribe where he's going to tell us what the elementary doctrine of Christ is, how we should already know it, and how we should be moving on to the advanced things already, and again, kind of of which he is speaking already. Okay, the Lord be with you.